We're going to read from the Bible. It's First Kings chapter 2. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me, if your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood stained the belt round his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Behorim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword, but now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom, and you will know what to do to him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood." Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned for 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Bathsheba asked him, Do you come peacefully? He answered, yes, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may say it, she replied. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king. But things changed and the kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. You may make it, she said. So he continued. Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied. I will speak to the king for you. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. I have one small request to make of you, she said. Do not refuse me, the king replied. Make it, my mother. I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah, 
King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he is my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar the priest and Joab son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. And now, as surely as the Lord lives, he who has established me securely on the throne of my father David and has founded a dynasty for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah, and he died. To Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go back to your fields in Anathoth. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now, because you carried the ark of the sovereign law before my father David, and shared all my father's hardships. So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priest of the Lord, fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken at Shiloh, about the house of Eli. When the news reached Joab, who had conspired with Adonijah, though not with Absalom, he fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. King Solomon was told that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. Then Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, go, strike him down. So Benaiah entered the tent of the Lord and said to Joab, The king says, come out. But he answered, no, I will die here. Benaiah reported to the king, this is how Joab answered me. Then the king commanded Benaiah, do as he says, strike him down and bury him. And so clear me and my father's house of the guilt of the innocent blood that Joab shed. The Lord will repay him for the blood he shed. Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked two men and killed them with the sword. Both of them, Abner son of Ner, commander of Israel's army, and Amasa son of Jether, commander of Judah's army, were better men and more upright than he. May the guilt of their blood rest on the head of Joab and his descendants forever. But on David and his descendants, his house and his throne, may there be the Lord's peace forever. So Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, went up and struck down Joab and killed him, and he was buried on his own land in the desert. The king put Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, over the army in Joab's position and replaced Abiathar with Zadok the priest. Then the king sent for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, but do not go anywhere else. The day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shimei answered the king, What you say is good. Your servant will do as my lord the king has said. And Shimei stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. But three years later, two of Shimei's slaves ran off to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath. And Shimei was told, Your slaves are in Gath. At this, he saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath in search of his slaves. So Shimei went away and brought the slaves back from Gath. When Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned, 
the king summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, on the day you leave to go anywhere else, you can be sure you will die? At that time you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command I gave you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. But King Solomon will be blessed, and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. Then the king gave the order to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down and killed him. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. This is God's word. Now, uh, we'll work our way through this book of 1 Kings uh, in chunks during the year, and there are some parts of it that I I think are just terrific stories. I look forward to preaching enormously. And then there's chapter 2. And it's mucky, isn't it? If you were following it, what a strange story, and it's all a bit brutal. So why don't we pray? Let's pray together that the Lord will help us to understand it rightly. Our great God and Father, we're absolutely persuaded that you don't waste your words and that every word that you've caused your spirit to record in the scriptures is for our good and will shape us rightly. So help us to understand this rightly so we know the sort of God that you are, we worship you truly, so that we come to love the Lord Jesus more and more. We do pray it for our good in his name's sake. Amen. So the Queen Elizabeth II then is the, the UK, the Britain's longest reigning monarch, and um, I hope, I, I'm a royalist, I'm unashamed to say so, I enjoyed the sort of, her brief sort of flurry of excitement that that created midweek, 63 years, 200 and whatever, 14 days, and counting and counting and counting, now that she's been queen over our great kingdom, if those of you have got citizenship here. Um, but you know, it only puts a number, it only puts a 48 in the list of reigning monarchs, which actually I thought was slightly disappointing. And if she's going to make the top 10, well, she needs another 10 years on the throne. And she might be a little daunted by that. Uh, Apparently, King Sabuza II of Swaziland is the longest reigning monarch. 82 years he managed. 82 years on the throne of Swaziland. But it's not Great Britain, is it? So we we don't mind too much uh, about that. But if you read the tributes of the Queen this week, she's lasted so long because, well, if you read the tributes, she's above politics, she's never put a foot wrong, seems a little excessive, doesn't it, anyway, never put a foot wrong, she's retained a sense of mystery, she's really good for tourism and helps the economy, whatever the reasons may be, lots of people suggest different reasons, but I think even even the, the sort of staunch Republicans look upon Elizabeth II and say, She has done a good job, we just don't like her job. You know, she is firmly established in the nation's affections, and her position is entirely secure. But when she dies, what then? Probably Charles, not quite as firmly established in the nation's affections, particularly in the northern end of our country, perhaps. And who knows? Who knows what will happen? It will perhaps be a rocky time. You come to 1 Kings chapter 2, and Solomon is establishing his throne. 
And you can see that that's the issue in Hebrew, story, in Hebrew uh, narrative, the history books, repetition slightly it sort of knocks you on the head to say, look, this is the important thing and what matters. And so four times you get the fact that the throne was established. So chapter, two, chapter 2, verse 12, Solomon sat on the throne of his father David. His rule was firmly established. Verse 24, as surely as the Lord lives, he who has established me. Uh, then right at the end of the chapter, verse 45, David's throne will remain established. It gets translated differently, but it's the same word. And right at the end of the chapter, the kingdom was firmly established in Solomon's hand. That's the important issue. Now, I know most, I know what most of you here are thinking. You're thinking, history. I love history. And hearing about how Solomon's throne was established in 970 BC is a dream come true for me on a Sunday morning. But there'll be a minority of people who don't feel that way about history. And you're wrong, but you should do. But just for that minority, before we, just to highlight it, before we really get going, I assume that God's Spirit has recorded this for at least two reasons. The first is this. Solomon is a little picture for us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived until Jesus came. And in Matthew chapter 12, Christ is, Jesus is described as another, better Solomon. So he's a picture. Solomon is God's king, ruling over God's kingdom. And therefore is a hint, a sort of shadow, a foretaste of Jesus, who is God's king, ruling over God's kingdom. So there'll be much we can learn about how Jesus establishes his kingdom from a chapter such as this. That's the first and probably the dominant thing we can learn. But then secondly, there, there are echoes for you and for me of how we can be established, how our life can be stable, how we can build, in Jesus' words, our life upon the rock, so the troubles, the trials, the, the tribulations of life don't knock us away. There'll be hints of that for us as well. So much to learn about how Jesus establishes his kingdom, but also stuff to learn about us, how we're established, how we, in the most general sense, not a financial sense, but in the most general sense, how we prosper in life. Okay, I'm going to cut it these three ways. Uh, obedience is essential. Uh, enemies must be dealt with, but God's promise must be trusted. Those three things. We'll uh, cut the chapter that way, okay? First then, how is the kingdom established? First, verses one to four, obedience is essential. Can't get away from that. Chapter two, verse one. When the time drew near for David to die, he called his son to him, Solomon. He gave a charge to Solomon his son, and says to him, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong, show yourself a man. It's the phrase that fathers have uttered to their sons throughout all generations. Be a man. Will you be a man? Now that's slightly culturally bound, isn't it? Um, so if you're a, a Spartan growing up in uh, uh, ancient uh, Greece, to be a man is to kill someone. You only become a man when you kill someone. Or in, uh, in sort of Mongol culture, you become a man when you bed a woman. Uh, or in perhaps modern culture, you, you're a man if you provide for your family, if you've got a decent job, a career. That, I mean, it's culturally bound in one sense, be a man. Although probably in the 21st century, people are a little unclear. What does it mean to be a man? Oh, I don't know anymore. Uh, anyway, tangent. But... Um, <laughs> According to David, what makes you a man? 
verse 2, so be strong, show yourself a man. And I think we can take this in a non-gender specific way. How do you be mature? Be an adult. How do, you know, that sort of sense. How do you do it? Well, it's obedience. Verse 3. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses. Obey. All little phrases there uh, in, chapter, in, in verse 3, excuse me, picked from the book of Deuteronomy. Walk in his ways, that's just sort of a very general sense. But then in the specifics, in the decrees, the commands, the laws, requirements, do everything that God has told you to do. Obey him. And obedience will produce two things, we're told here. Uh, so obey everything written in the law of Moses. First, so that you may prosper in all you do. And wherever you go, that life would go well. And secondly, verse 4, so that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you'll never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But that's striking. How do you establish a kingdom? How do you have a secure nation? Well, it's obedience to the word of God. And there's a sense in which this whole book, one kings and two kings, is one book just chopped in two because the scrolls weren't long enough in those days. This whole book of kings, there's a sense in which the, these verses, chapter 2, 1 to 4, are a little bit of a headline over all of them. Because we'll see as we work our way through it, when a king obeys God's word, everything goes brilliantly. Uh, the nation is prosperous financially, economically, they're stable, they're secure, they're, you know, no one invades. When a king disobeys the word of God, disaster. And everything goes badly. Obedience leads to just rule and success. And disobedience leads to neglect, unjust rule and, and failure. That's how it goes in this book. Now life is complicated, we all know that, and the chapter knows that, we'll get to it in a moment. But... But wise living begins with obedience to God's word. Got to have that in place, first of all. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's not. Let me give you a flippant example. Uh, in August, Subwoodo, uh, work uh, took me to Australia, and as a family, we tacked on a couple of weeks' holiday. And um, uh, we stayed at one point for a week on the very beautiful uh, four-mile beach of Port Douglas, which is just beautiful, white sand, delightful sea. Uh, it's fabulous on a four-mile beach. But there's one thing they do say. They say, just don't swim after dark, all right? And you can see this sign maybe just about uh, the crucial element of it being crocodiles may be present in these waters. And they don't do a lot in the day, but at night they swim from one sort of mangrove patch to another. And these are not cute things. These are sort of five-meter, 500-kilo big fellas. You don't, you know, and um, now for me, as a, as a Brit, all right, a Brit going to Australia, I see this sign, crocodiles may be present in these waters. Only, you can't read the rest, but only swim between the red and yellow flags when lifeguards are present. I see that sign and say, I will obey. <laughs> I will obey. And you talk to the locals, the barmen, etc. You, know, you know, is it bad here at night? Only an idiot goes swimming at night. All right. 
Uh, I'd, I'd like to view myself as one who is not an idiot. I've generally view, and that is an easy thing for me to obey. Not everyone obeys that sign. And there are Bruce's who go, sorry, that's terrible. I shouldn't say that. It's terrible. But there are locals who do. No, no, sorry, not locals. They all know better. There are tourists who do swim at night. They see the signs. They hear the warnings. But they don't obey. Why not? I mean, really, you want to speak of it? Why not, you fool? Have you seen, have you seen these things? They're, they go, they're big. You know, they're nasty. 500 kilos. Why not? Well, of course, the people say, you know, the comments come. Well, it doesn't happen very often, does it? Well, I'm a strong swimmer. If I see anything, I'll get out of the way. Well, stuff like that happens, but not to someone like me. Yeah, but it's nice swimming at night when it's not crazy humid and warm, and it's just it's really lovely to go swimming under the stars. And so people do. They disobey the command of, uh, of the lifeguards. And as far as I can tell, they're idiots in doing it in such a place as that. They're nasty things, the big crocs. But actually, when it comes to normal life, we can live that way. There are some rules, some commands of God. We see, yeah, of course, of course, of course. I can see that for myself, that disobeying that would be bad, that murder is bad. I get that one. But there are some we look on and say, well, it doesn't always work that way in life, does it? I'm quite a strong, not swimmer, runner. I'm quite strong. I can escape that problem. I know God says this, but actually I, I want to. I want to. And things never really go wrong for a person such as me. And right here at the beginning, as it were, of two kings, David wants to stamp clearly, and it's for the, for the whole book. Look, wisdom begins with obedience. Wisdom begins with obedience to God's word. But it's tempting to ignore what he requires. We know that. There'll be occasionally we'll say, well, I don't, you know, I don't think time with Jesus is very important. We'll walk in his ways. I, I don't think that, well, I do think that life would be more fun if I was sexually promiscuous. No, walk in his ways. He does know what's best. You might think of it this way. I sometimes just visually think, imagine, we can take that off the screen now. We've had quite enough crocs. The, uh, but imagine the totality of all knowledge in the world is represented by that screen. Everything that has happened, will happen, is happening now, across the whole, every bit of knowledge in the whole of history is represented on that screen. How much do you think you would know? How much would you shade in for your awareness of all that knowledge? What do you go for? A millimeter squared? I think that would be pretty arrogant to go for that much. If you're thinking, "Mm, half, you you think again. um, When the Lord knows everything, and we know so little, why would we not obey him and his commands? It's folly, folly to do that. Trust in the Lord's commands and you'll prosper. Be established, is what we're told. 
No different as Matt read at the beginning, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone who, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Obedience is essential if you're going to prosper. Obedience to the word of God. That's the, once it's the dominant thing, the main thing we want to say. But look, we need to have a look at the rest of this chapter. And so second thing, enemies must be dealt with, which is really chapters, excuse me, verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Enemies must be dealt with. Now, before we look at the detail, we'll skim over it. Let me just put a few things in place. There are terrific stories in 1 Kings, but we do need to remember these things at least. First, narrative is not normative. So when you read a story of a history that's taken place in the Bible, don't always assume that's good. David has an affair. That doesn't mean we're to copy it. Uh, uh, Solomon kills his enemies. It doesn't automatically mean we're to copy it. Some things are just describe the muck of life. Just because it's here doesn't mean it's automatically commended. Do you need to bear that in mind? That second little thing. Israel, it is different. There's nothing like this nation of Israel today. Then, God's kingdom was a political state the nation of Israel. There's no equivalent today. See, the closest thing is the church today. But it isn't quite the same, of course. And in our nation today, if there are threats, we do want them dealt with. If the prime minister hears of a, an attempt, you know, a plan to overthrow democracy and replace it with a totalitarian state in the UK, you'd probably want the government to do something about that, I think. You know, when Abu Hamza and Abu Qatada are deported, we think, good, good, because those are people who wanted to destroy our nation. We think, good, we do want the nation to be protected, and that's what's going on here. But then the third little thing, just to be honest with you, there is some debate. Does the narrator commend Solomon or not? I don't know what you think when it was read. On the one hand, there are plenty of people ready to damn David and Solomon. There's a sort of seeming petty vindictiveness here. Solomon, can you kill all the people I didn't manage to kill who annoyed me? There's a hint of that to it. And I, you know, I think David is a flawed person. And yet, although there's brutality in this chapter, it is mixed. So David is also, in chapter 2, verse 7, he wants to reward those who are faithful to him who took a risk and supported him when it was costly. And I think by the time you get to the end of the chapter, and the narrator says, so the kingdom of Solomon was firmly established, that is a positive slant on what's taken place here. Now, look, let me briefly look at some of the details with you, because um, uh, just to, to go through it. Four main characters are dealt with by Solomon, uh, very briefly, because so, um, the detail gets a bit mucky. But the first is Adonijah. Now, if you were here last time, just brief recap, um, uh, with a few emojis, etc. If you were here last time, you know in chapter one, there was a coup. And on one side, we may just leave this up so we don't get confused on names. On one side... Uh, uh, David is the king, um, his wife Bathsheba, Solomon the son, and uh, uh, these guys, um, uh, Beniah, Zadok, and Nathan. Of course, I have no idea if they look like them. That's not, you know, that's not 
Uh, and Benaiah looks a lot like Sam Lucas. Do we think that, if you know him? Uh, there we go. But anyway, leave that aside. Um, we, won't, we won't tell you who everyone else looks like. That'll just get embarrassing. But uh, and on the, these guys rebelled. Adonijah, Joab, Abiathar, Jonathan, they rebelled rebelled against Solomon. We might just leave that up so we don't get too confused. Now, Adonijah then led the coup against Solomon last time, but Solomon had mercy on him. And what do we get in this account? Adonijah hasn't given up. So verse 15, he goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and says, verse 15, no, oh, the kingdom is all mine. All Israel looked to me as their king. Well, that's just not true. It's just not true. But he still hasn't given up on the throne. He wants the throne. And so he says, verse 17, please give King Solomon, he won't refuse it, Abishag the Shunammite is my wife. Well, that's a power play. Again, it doesn't quite transpose. But in the culture of the day, if you slept with the old king's concubine, and Abishag was with David, you're saying, I'm the new guy. Now, if at best, this is naive from Adonijah. Solomon has said, okay, you've, you've launched a coup against me, but I'll spare your life as long as you behave yourself. And now he's having another go. This is a sort of relentless uh, refusal to acknowledge the king. And so Solomon has him executed. Verse 26, Abiath is a bit different. Uh, he, hasn't, he doesn't do anything more. Okay, he was part of the coup, but in chapter 2, he doesn't do anything wrong. So David says, well, you, Solomon says, you just, I'm removing you from post. Uh, I'm not leaving someone in my cabinet who is constantly sniping against me. He does that. Joab, well, he's just a loose cannon. He kills anyone who gets in his way, so let's get rid of him. He's a danger. And the last one, Shimei, he's just daft. Solomon says, don't go back to your armies and your power base in the region of Benjamin, and he does to launch it. So he's just daft. What do you make of this? How Solomon treats his enemies. Well, again, on the one hand, I think we're to say, here is a shadow of the reign of Jesus Christ. When you read the New Testament, Jesus comes twice to this world, the first time is to offer forgiveness. The first time is to die so you and I can live forever. It's very wonderful. But we're also told he will return again to establish his kingdom perfectly with perfect justice. He'll cast out all sin, all hostility, all enemies when he returns. And that is good news even though there will be some crying. A little while ago, I was on the tube, um, and uh, it, was, it was just after the rush out. So I was in a tube carriage, and it wasn't particularly busy, only you know, I don't know, half a dozen of us in this end of the carriage. And you get on, and you look at... Someone had left a rucksack on the tube. And uh, you see, after a while, you're there, and you, you sort of notice there's a rucksack, and, you know, is that yours? No. Is it yours? No. Is it anyone's? No. Oh, and you sort of look around at one another and think, well, that's not great, is it? Uh, and then after a while, someone thought, it, you know, someone got very stressed about this. We must do something. What do you want to do? And pulled the emergency handle. <laughs> and you think, okay, doing something is okay. Don't do that. Uh, you know, everyone off, you know, everything backed up. 
Uh, you know, if you had a delay on the tube about three months ago, yeah, that was my carriage. Um, not me, but, you know. Uh, and I thought it's very interesting, ten years on, isn't it, from the rucksack bombings in London of July 2005. And still there's anxiety. Now, I'm sure it was just some 13-year-old school tourist had just left their rucksack on the, on the tube, I'm, you know. I'm not sure, can't be certain, but probably, probably. But just the anxiety that resides. Is there a threat? Are we safe? When Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom and removes all sin, all hostility, all enemies, how wonderful. Never, never again do you fear. That's when the kingdom is 100% established. That's good news. It's good news. So what do we learn? Well, Jesus will establish his kingdom and it'll be a wonderful place when he returns and gets rid of all sin. Secondly, just for you and for me, what do you and I learn? Well, I think we learn this from a chapter such as this. The beginning of wisdom is obedience, but you do need to be shrewd in life. Not that shrewdness ever compromises obedience. No, no, obedience always comes first and get that in place, but you do need to be wise. You see that with Jesus. Jesus, when he, you know, the perfect man, always obeys. And yet he's dealing with the crowds. They say, oh, can we have signs and then we'll believe in you? No. No, you can't because you won't. Oh. You see that how he deals with religious opponents. It, uh, he's just shrewd in how he respl- replies. He never answers their questions directly. You know, he's a bit of a politician, if the truth be told. They ask him a question, he asks them a question and wrong foots them. He is shrewd. He's not daft. Ten times in the New Testament, Jesus commends in his followers shrewdness. Oh, you obey, but you've got to be, you know, don't be stupid. Not everyone likes you. People will try and steal from you. Do lock your doors, you know, and etc. And how you relate to those who are hostile, be wise. You know, whatever you make of Jeremy Corbyn being elected yesterday as leader of the Labour Party, I mean, he seems like a nice bloke. He's, you know, well-intentioned, undoubtedly. Whatever you think of him, you've got to think, golly, mate, the media are going to rip you apart. They are going to rip you apart because you, you don't, you're not shrewd in how you relate to the media. And there is a worldly wisdom, you know. And I think you're going to be destroyed before too long. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see. But Jesus says, look, obey me. But you do so in a messy world. And so you do need to be thoughtful, particularly about those who are hostile to you. Don't be naive. We'll see, immediately the first thing um, Solomon does when his reign is established, says, Lord, I want to obey you. You've given me your commandments. Now, please, will you give me more wisdom? We need more. Obedience is essential. Enemies must be dealt with. Last, and very briefly, God's promise must be trusted. God's promise must be trusted. Chapter 2 and verse 3, obedience is essential, but what happens if a king's disobedient? Chapter 2, verse 3, observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. So what happens if he disobeys Solomon? Does he not prosper? And will God break his promise? 
Oh dear, that's a problem. Now we'll have to come back to this uh, in later weeks. But this story of God's kingdom in the Old Testament, in one sense it's always underpinned, uh, we haven't really got time to turn back now, we'll do so next week I think, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I will establish the throne. I will make sure that Solomon is secure. I will do it. Here in 1 Kings 2, God says, if you obey me, I'll do it. Here, I'll do it, and there are no conditions. Here, uh, you've got to obey me. Now, we'll see this work out in practice, but you end up, you have to say this. The promise of God never changes, but the prospering of the individuals do. So even in this book of Kings, they, you know, there are some kings who behave appallingly, and the nation is defeated, and um, they are driven into exile, and they lose everything, but still there's always a king on the throne. There's always a king of Israel. Individuals fail, and their prospering collapses. But God's promise never does. The important thing if you're a Christian is to know God's promise will never, never fail. It can't fail. But the prospering of your life can change depending whether you're obedient or not. It can. Ah, The Lord Jesus says, I'll never let you go. I'll take you to be with me in glory. That's always true. That'll never fail. Can't fail. It's a promise bought with his sacrifice upon the cross for you. But if you disobey him, don't expect life to go brilliantly smoothly. If you disobey him, don't be shocked that you lose a sense of joy and peace and freedom and freedom from anxiety. All those things will go if you disobey him. And we've got to hold on to both of those. The promise of Jesus cannot, will not ever fail to keep you as a Christian. But obedience is the way that your life prospers. Obedience to the word of God. Not that you obey the word of God and instantly you get 10 pounds in your bank account every time you do something right. He's not saying that. But spiritually, joy, peace, happiness, contentment, freedom. You know those things in response to obedience of the word of God. You've got to hold those two things together. The promise never fails. Trust in the promise of Jesus Christ. But obedience leads to greater contentment in this life. Disobedience, life can go badly. You get eaten by crocs, not literally. Let me lead us in prayer. God, our Father, this is not a chapter which instantly is straightforward to understand. But we pray we'd hear your word rightly, that obeying you, trusting your word, is essential to see our lives flourish in the fullest sense. But we recognize also that underpinning all our efforts and all we might do is your promise that Jesus will always be king, that we can always trust him, that if we have trusted in his death for us, 
we can be sure that we'll be in his wonderful, safe, secure kingdom of glory forever and ever. Help us get that balance right, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.